Welcome to The Cut Presents In Her Shoes. I'm Lindsay Peoples, Editor-in-Chief of The Cut. I'm taking over this feed and talking to women we at The Cut love and admire or just find interesting. We'll explore how they found their path, what got in their way, and how they think about bringing others along now that they've arrived. Today, we are going from the White House to the newsroom with Simone Sanders, whose new show, Simone, premiered on MSNBC just last week. Prior to stepping into the spotlight as lead anchor, Sanders served as the chief spokesperson for Vice President Kamala Harris, an advisor on Joe Biden's presidential campaign, and in 2016 made history as the youngest presidential press secretary on record for Bernie Sanders' campaign. We talked about big transitions, how she hopes to shape the future of political discourse and reclaiming America. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Greetings, Lindsay. It's always great to chat with you. Hi, lovely. How are you? I'm good. You look so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for doing this. I know you're so busy and congrats on the show. Thank you. I can't wait. We will have to have you on. Yes, because one of our culture lifestyle segments, I definitely want to have you. To have me acting a fool on your show? I don't know. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk. I mean, I don't even know how long we've known each other. It's been a while now, but I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you about your new show and everything because it's so incredible to see you continuously excel and do the most amazing things. Oh, thank you. I really want to start at the beginning because I think that young people and specifically young Black women look at someone like you and they're like, how, how do I get there? How do I do it? Like, how does she do it? What even from the beginning got you interested in working into politics and feeling like it was something that you needed to do? My first brush with politics was I introduced Bill Clinton at a luncheon at Girls Inc. of Omaha. Shout out to North Omaha. Mm. Yes, yes. <laughs> when I was 16 years old. And I was really excited to do it at this luncheon that Girls Inc. has every year. They always have a girl introduce the speaker. And the year before, then Senator Obama, prior to being President Obama, before he even said he was running for president, he was the speaker. And my friend um, Camille introduced him. So I'm like, oh, I always looked up to Camille. I wanted to do everything Camille did. And I wanted to be the person to introduce Bill Clinton. And I ended up having the opportunity, which is great because people said I wasn't a public speaker at the time. Who told you that? Oh, honey, lots of people. They said I talk too fast, too loud, and too much, (laughs) (laughs) which was true. I hope they tune in to the show. (laughs) (laughs) People didn't believe I was a public speaker, which is why it's so funny that now I have a television show. Exactly. But um, Bill Clinton, I mean, he was just such a, he was just such a great orator. Like he had this whole speech that he didn't write down. He just did it off of memory. 
and then included things that we'd all talked about backstage. And I just found it so fascinating. So after that, I got a number of internships, one of which was in my mayor's office while I was in college. And they tried to recall the mayor when I first got there. Wow. Yeah, it was crazy. So I went to go volunteer on the mayor's effort to beat the recall. And I met these guys who owned a firm. They were African-American men from Nashville who earned a political consulting, who owned a political consulting firm. So they brought them up to Omaha to help organize North and South Omaha, which were the African-American and Latino parts of the city. And I volunteered with them. I got coffee. I did anything they wanted me to do. And after the recall was over, they let me work with them while I was in school. And come to find out, they they definitely were not paying me what I should have been paid. Okay. They never are. <laughs> they never are. Chris Smith, Robert West, I see y'all. <laughs> but it was the best experience. That's where I got the bulk of my political experience. That's when I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I did mayoral races. I worked judges races. This was the first time I, I knew that judges were elected in some places because in Nebraska, they're appointed. I did stuff on reservations. I worked state legislative races. It was truly a very formative experience. So I always say that, you know, Chris Smith and Robert West gave me my first job in politics. And that is really what pushed me to, you know, want to do it. I thought it was fun and I thought it was impactful. It is. Did you have any TV dreams even back then or people that you watched and, and you really looked up to? I watched the news all the time. Obviously, I watched Jackie Reed. Do you remember when BET had BET News? I do. Yes, and Jackie Reed. I would watch Jackie Reed at night at home. I remember when April Bryan first started doing television. I would watch her. I would watch Soledad O'Brien. Like, it was... Now, there are so many, like... Black women on television. There are so many women of color. There are more women. It used to just be all white men on TV. But those were, back in the day, you know, it was Soledad. I remember April Ryan. I remember Jackie Reed. And I used to pretend I was a, um, a TV reporter at home. My name was Donna Burns. So I was Donna <laughs> Burns reporting live. I love that. So, I mean, you've had all this experience. And I think, you know, when you became the youngest presidential press secretary on record, what was the experience actually like to do that, to know that you were the youngest, to to carry the weight of that as, as, as a Black woman? At the time, I mean, I sure assumed that I was the youngest person, but I didn't know at the time that I was the youngest. It was after the fact that I realized that they, they usually didn't give people as young as me the kind of jobs. Um, but the experience was, it was very formative. I have been very candid about my really great experiences on the campaign trail, but also the not so great experiences. I've been candid about the fact that I would travel across the country with Senator Sanders. And when I first started traveling with him, some places we would go and I couldn't get in because we would be traveling separately and people wouldn't believe who I was. I would have to get someone else to validate that, yes, I was the national press secretary. Right. Yes, I'm senior staff that you need to let in this building. There were two experiences on the campaign trail that I think that really just had an imprint on me. And one was when I first started, we got an inquiry from the Washington Post. And so I forwarded the inquiry around to the entire communications team, just to make sure folks knew. And someone responded to me and they said, you know, if the Washington Post or the New York Times calls or any of the cable news outlets, you know, you need to send them over here. But if BT, Telemundo calls, and I think they even said The Root, you or Roland Martin, you can take those. Absolutely not. So I did the, you know, the comment meme where you're like typing the thing and it's like, mm, delete, delete. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was typing. And I finally ended up just responding, thank you very much. But as the national press secretary, I think I'm emboldened to speak to the national press. And you know, there are people that I worked with at that time that they didn't know what my ability was. You know, they didn't know where I had come from. They didn't know that I worked all these races. They assumed that they did not have a senior Black woman on the campaign, and I was just hired to be a senior Black woman. And from that, I learned that I have to always, it's not enough to just say it. So I always come with, like, data points and facts and figures, because as often the youngest person in the room, as you you well know, and a Black woman, people are always like, "Mm, well, mm, what about, no. This is why I'm saying it. This is the data to back it up. And then the second thing from that campaign, I was having a very tumultuous time, like mid to end of the campaign. And um, I found out that people in the campaign had told some of the networks that I wasn't to be doing TV. And when I found out, it was crazy because they were asking me to do press conferences with local press in Brooklyn and Harlem. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> Jesus Christ. I feel like one is noting, I'm not good enough for cable television, but I can speak to the presumably Black reporters in Brooklyn and Harlem. Exactly. And that is the moment that I that just really continued to cement for me that you're going to always have to show them better than you can tell them. I identify with so much of what you're saying because I think that as Black women, it always feels like it's never enough. You feel like you have to overcompensate and just prove to the point of... How many times have you been an editor-in-chief? This is my second go. Exactly. Your second go. And I'm sure people are still asking you questions. And it is... Sometimes it's exhausting. Yeah. It's extremely exhausting. I mean, I was going to ask you, I've seen that that TikTok has... They've probably been serving it to me on purpose because they know what I'm thinking about how Black women have been saying, I don't want to be just considered the strong Black woman anymore. How do you feel about that narrative that we, you know, it does feel like we have to continue to be strong. I mean, even watching the the Supreme Court hearings, I'm like, mm-hmm. she is so overqualified. Mm-hmm. The questions, everything, and it just feels like Black women are continuously in the, in the, in the point of, you know, being disrespected, but also having to be so strong. And I'm wondering how you've dealt with that at such a young age. Look, I think that it is something, Donna Brazil told me this once. I remember calling her once on the campaign trail in 2016, and essentially I was complaining. I was complaining, I was tired, I was like, nah, 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 you know, all these things. And Donna Brazil said to me on the phone that day, she said, well, you know, perhaps this isn't the job for you. And I was very offended. And I got off the phone, and I took me a couple days, and I was like, mm-mm, Donna don't understand. And I finally called her back, and what she was saying was, that if I'm having issues at this level, the issues, they don't change when you get higher, they just get harder. And so the isms aren't going away, the racism, the ageism, sexism, we have to learn how to navigate through it. Of course, we need to call it out when we see it. We need to work to eradicate it, bust bust down doors for people that'll come behind us. But I can't bust down the door if I don't navigate through it. And that is how I feel about when I saw Judge Jackson, because she navigated through it, the door is swung open even wider for all of those Black women judges that are coming after her. Right. All of those aspiring young law students. I, I think that that just comes with the territory. But I also believe that we have to allow people to be dynamic. And we have to allow Black women and women, period, to be 
dynamic individuals. We need to allow people to be vulnerable. I don't want to be on the grind every day. I want to rest. Rest is very sexy to me. I like to take a nap. <laughs> I'm going to start saying that rest is sexy. Yes, rest is very sexy. Shout out to the naps out here. That's what I like. But in this job, though, I mean, obviously you being an anchor, you have a show. How are you going to balance it? What led you to feel like that was the right thing for this next phase of your life? I, I'm, I'm getting married this year. I'm getting married this summer. And when I left, yay, very excited. And when I made the decision to leave the White House, there were all these questions about why, why, why? And I was very clear. I was like, I worked on the campaign with then candidate Biden from the beginning. So I have essentially been working for Joe Biden for almost three years. I'm tired. It is a lot to go from a campaign to a transition to the White House. And so I said, you know, I want something to allow me to take a break. And then I ended up with the show <laughs> and people are like, are you really, are you really taking a break? And I would note, I have been taking a break since I have left the, the White House. But I think that balance is really about boundaries. And I signed up to do a job. I'm committed to it. I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the opportunity because there's nobody that looks like me on TV. There's nobody with my experience, my background, and I and my perspective matters. And I want to open up and bring the perspectives of other people, you know, beyond the beltway. And so that is why I think this is so important. But I have boundaries. That means I get off days. That means that, you know, the things that I feel are important to do, specifically when it comes to my family, I'm going to go do those. Because people who just grind it out and don't have outlets, those are not happy, pleasant people. So we're going to do hard work, but we want to be pleasant when we do it. Lindsay. We want to have a good time. I know. I'm trying to be better about it. I promise. You need to give us some more cooking tutorials on the Instagrams. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I promise. Okay. For the listeners who aren't familiar, um, I want to talk about your book and specifically, uh, it was called Shut Up. <laughs> yes. No, you shut up. <laughs> Former Virginia attorney who, you know, told you to shut up for a minute. In hindsight, now that, you know, you've had time away from that experience and that moment, how does it feel now? Like what goes on in your head now and thinking of that moment and how it's changed things for you? Well, I guess I need to tell Ken Cuccinelli, thank you, because he gave me the title of my book and something to write about. <laughs> in writing the book and then and going around talking about my book, I found that every woman in America can identify with the shut up experience. Somebody has proverbially told you to shut up in some way, shape, or form. Most people have not actually been told to shut up. That was a very visceral experience that I had. But I often find that we go through things and we don't know it in the moment, but in the aftermath, it's to help people. And that moment, particularly, it, it helped me. And I didn't feel that way in the moment. In the moment, I felt embarrassed. In the moment, I felt belittled because you must think less of me to think that you can talk to me like that on national television. But I also stood up for myself in that moment without using curse words by my dad so I could keep my job at the time. <laughs> so I think it was just, it was a lesson on the fly for, on a number of things. It's compounded. And I draw from that now. And I, I mean, I wrote a whole book about it, anchored in that. The book was about a number of other things. And I just think that it's, it's a story I always share with other women, but particularly young women, because I think... We need to know that our, again, I'm going back to boundaries. One of my good girlfriends is always talking to me about her boundaries and her therapist and the boundaries that her therapist is telling her about. And we used to give her a hard time about the boundaries early on. But I think, frankly, you know, I guess her and her therapist were right. Boundaries are very important. They are. And one of those boundaries is how you allow people to treat you, your personal and professional line, I like to call it. 
And you need to know what you're going to do when someone crosses your personal or professional line. And that day, Ken Cuccinelli crossed my personal and my professional line. <laughs> Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The second part of your subtitle is Reclaiming America. I'm sure you'll be talking about this a ton in the show, but I'm interested in, in what you think that means now. There's obviously so much always happening in the world. It feels like the news can be very overwhelming and depressing. And so what do you feel like that really feels like now for you? And, and what do you hope that people think about in, in watching the show and in Reclaiming America overall? You know, I think reclaiming America is as much about democracy as it is about the we. So I talk about it in my book. I talk about that, you know, in the preamble to the Constitution, we the people in order to form a more perfect union. The we was not talking to you or I, Lindsay. The we only spoke to old, rich, white men. And over time, that we has expanded to include women, to include people of color, to include differently abled people, to include the LGBTQ plus community. To, the we is just ever expanding. It includes a diverse number of experiences and geography. And I am excited to explore the ever expanding we in my show, but also issues of democracies. We're going to talk about voting rights. We're going to talk about reproductive rights. We're going to talk about the fact that the Supreme Court is likely to gut row come this June and what that means for millions of women across the country. Don't remind me. We're going to. Yeah, we got to talk about it. People didn't forget. Stresses me out. No, we've been we've been working on, on a lot of stuff on the cut about this and mm -hmm. I'm just dreading it happening in, in real life because it's feels like things move forward and then it feels like everything moves back. Democracy is a fight. It is a fight. It's a democracy if you can keep it. You have to fight for democracy every single day. And I think that maybe it's something that we we have not, and I say we as we as younger women, millennial folks, haven't necessarily understood in a way that the generations before us understood. Like we are not that far removed from the civil rights movement. No. Not at all. But we live under very different just very different privileges. You know, I have the privilege to, you know, have a television show as a bald black girl with long eyelashes and bedazzled nails and a little bold lip. Someone opened the door so that that could be my experience. But democracy is a fight. And frankly, 
we are losing it, not just in America, but around the world. And so that's one of the things, you know, I want to talk about. I want to talk about elections. We're going to cover the midterms. But from various perspectives, I think there's a lot of focus on one to two different types of perspectives. People talk about suburban women, for example, as though suburban women is called for white women. Well, in some suburbs, but the polling says and the data shows that increasingly the suburbs are very much so populated with women of color and they are millennial women. These millennial moms, they they are moms. They own businesses. They have families. Like this is a, we have to, how we think about the we or the who needs to expand. And I'm excited that I have an opportunity to do that with my show. No, I'm so excited. I hear that. I'm excited to hear how you guys bring about a lot of different current events. And I think exposed things that are happening to people need to be more aware of midterms, all those things for sure. Do you feel like any of this political discourse has gotten any better since Trump? Like, do you feel like these conversations have actually been able to move forward as someone who's been part of a lot of these conversations and at the forefront of these conversations? I think some conversations have moved forward in respects that we are now talking about different things, right? That you are seeing because representation in front of and behind the camera, we're having different conversations. But I also see that progress has stalled a little bit in terms of our discourse because people people just want to talk to the people that agree with them. And I just don't want to hear from people that agree with me. You know, I don't think everybody in America should be a Democrat. Okay, I think that having the diversity of the political parties is important. I think having a diverse discourse across age and geography and background is important. Like on my show, I want to talk to Republicans. I had a really formative experience when I was a fellow at Harvard in the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School, where I, I lived and worked with a number of people many of which who did not agree with me ideologically. And some of those people are folks that I count among good friends today. And that is not how I would have, I wouldn't be thinking about politics like that had I not had that immersive, informative experience. And so I think we need to have more conversations that could be uncomfortable conversations with people that don't necessarily agree with us. But I think that we should explore these topics now. Lindsay, I say this, I'm not trying to explore topics with white supremacists, okay? <laughs> We're not trying to explore topics with people just that just don't believe women should exist or have jobs. Nothing with ignorance. You yes. know, yeah, we want to have smart dialogue. So I'm excited to have smart conversations. I think the thing that I disliked about cable news when I was a commentator is the penchant for everyone to just want to argue. And I found people would come on set and we weren't really trying to hear what everybody else was trying to say. Everybody was just waiting to get their point out or you're waiting on somebody to say something inflammatory so you can you get them. I don't want that to be my show. Something that I spent a lot of time thinking about when I was editor in chief of Teen Vogue was how do we get. I felt like people were always saying like, oh, like we need to get young people involved. And honestly, I felt like it was actually quite easy to get young people really involved and care about the world outside of themselves. You could talk to young people about sustainability and a hundred ways that they could make the world more sustainable and they would be interested and want to change their daily habits immediately. Mm -hmm. But often I felt like actually the change was like, how do we get non-political people, people who think that like midterms don't matter, people who think that these things don't matter actually to care. How do you view that? And, and what do you like, you know, if you were to get one of those people to watch your show, what would you want them to understand? So I agree with you. I think young people in general are the most, and I'm talking about people younger than us. Yeah. 
These are the most engaged young people we have ever met. They're volunteering. They have very clear ideas about things they like and don't like. They have very clear ideas about what they feel like their government is not doing for them. They paying attention, okay? They may not vote. Now, they could be infrequent voters, but they are definitely paying attention. Right. And I, I think that there are a lot of people, though, who aren't paying attention. And I think the way to reach those people is to, one, meet them where they are, like going into the communities and talking to them. One of the things I want to be able to do is focus groups. You know, you always see these focus groups. And um, when's the last time you saw a focus group that they did with young people, younger voters, or millennial voters across the board in like Wisconsin? I just think we have to meet people where they are and um, talk to them about the things that are important to them. And I don't think you can shove politics down people's throat. Now, in my opinion, everything is political. I mean, the ability to have, you know, green lettuce in your grocery store is, in fact, political. Right. No, I 100 percent agree with that. Um, What advice would you have for young women of color who are entering politics, journalism? I have to ask this because I know you always get this question, I'm sure, and, and DMs about it, but it will be helpful for anyone who's listening. What do you think in hindsight now you would say to your younger self? Well, I would want to tell my younger self that that you are good just the way you are. Do your research and be prepared. When I got my job with Senator Sanders, he, I had went on like, at that point, he was my 29th or 30th interview, but I'd been on a lot of interviews before him and nobody hired me. And I was, it was to the point where I didn't think I was going to get a job in politics. And in my quote unquote interview, I guess, with Senator Sanders, a question at the end of our conversation, he asked me was, do you have an idea what you'd like to do? Nobody else that I had ever interviewed with for any other jobs had said that to me. And I told Senator Sanders, yes, I do. I would like to be the national press secretary. I want to do cable television. I want to be your on-the-record spokesperson. And I want to have a hand in the messaging strategy, just like we discussed here. And Senator Sanders laughed at me. And he said, "Uh, have you ever done cable television before? And I told him, no, I had not. But I do think that I would be very good at it. And he laughed. And that was a Thursday on a Tuesday the then campaign manager, Jeff Weaver, called me and said that I got the job. And when I said, what is the job? He said, national press secretary. Now, I had never been anybody's national press secretary before, but I had done my research. I knew what I wanted for my next level. And I knew that although I had not done it before, I could perform. And I think that a lot of times we as young women, particularly young women of color, young black women, Sometimes we don't want to ask for the things that we believe that we have worked for. I'm not talking about things that I want. This is what I've worked for. I love that. I love that. We talk a lot about on the cut of women's relationship with ambition and how they get things done. Mm -hmm. How has your relationship with ambition changed over the past couple of years? And and where's your head at with that now? I mean, we talked a little bit about boundaries earlier, but I think a lot of people you know, look at someone like you and they're like, oh, she must do this and this and that. And and what does that relationship internally feel like with the ambition? You know, it feels, one, I'm grateful, right? I remember um, um, a meme I came across like some years ago and it says, I remember the days I prayed for the things I have now because it is such a good reminder. Like, obviously, I think of myself as a, an ambitious person. Part of the reason I went into politics, I think, politicians and politics are one of the most powerful people or entities you could be involved in, in the world. And I want to be a powerful person. I want to change things. You can't change the world if you're not some bit of powerful. Right. But I also know that we have to, I've learned to kind of stop and smell the flowers and um, don't just 
plow through things to the point where you are not seeing how your work has paid off, how, you know, I'm a, I'm a faith-based person, how, how God has really poured into and helped orchestrate what has happened because you can, you can miss moments. And I think the thing that really cemented this for me was in March of 2017, my dad had a stroke and he died two weeks later. So unexpected. He was super healthy. He was at the gym, got off the treadmill, said he didn't feel well and then collapsed. And he, he woke up maybe a couple of days later, but was dead within two weeks. And so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it was, uh, well, I guess it's five years ago now. And I will never forget that I was at work when it happened and I decided to come home. I was at work in DC. I decided to come home to Omaha and then I had a speaking engagement in Toronto. And I was like, oh, dang, I don't already took these people's money. <laughs> I gotta go. So my mom is just like, there's nothing, you know, he will want you to go. I go, I'm in Toronto. I give the best like speech I've ever given at the time. And then I wake up that night in the middle of the night, come to find out my dad passed like that evening. And I went right back to work after it was all over. I went to his, I went to the funeral. Then I was back at work and I was just plowing through, plowing through, plowing through. And I was so upset at myself because I was looking back at text messages. I was thinking of the, the times I didn't respond to text messages, the times I decided not to go home, the things that I've missed with family. And I even felt like I had to plow through it and continue to work because I was building and I didn't want to miss that moment. And a friend of mine, one day I was in the airport and she calls and she said, oh, I heard your father died. Are you okay? And I just break down crying in the airport. This was like two months later. And she was like, you need to get some help. You need to go see a grief counselor. You need to go to therapy. And that phone call helped save my life and just helped change my mindset. So I'm so grateful. Like I want, there, there are more things that I want in this world. Like I'm not going to get less hungry, but I am now more aware. And I think awareness is a really important part of ambition and reflection is an important part of that too because we can't go 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 and miss it all and I learn from things so I just I feel really grateful to be where I am right now with the people that I'm with doing a new thing that I think I'm gonna love I'm so excited for you and thank you so much for for doing this I really appreciate it it's been such a joy to talk with you always thank you Lindsay always a joy to speak with you we are having you on the show Y'all watch Simone. <laughs> In Her Shoes is hosted by me, Lindsay Peoples. Our producer and editor is Kylie Holloway. Our engineer is Brendan McFarlane, and our executive producer is Hannah Rosen. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Lindsay Peoples, and thank you for listening. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.